Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Daisy Cousins Presents. I'm Daisy Cousins, and I'm thrilled to be right here on ADH TV every week, twice a week. And boy, do we have one incredible show for you tonight. Joining me later on the program is model, actress, and entrepreneur Pamela Jean Noble, who co-founded the Pretty Little Patriot fashion brand to talk about how her brand upholds real women in the image that God has for them. Make sure you stick around, it will be a lovely interview. But first, many of you will have heard the term cultural Marxism thrown around a lot. Those on the right side of politics tend to use it as another term for wokeism, or they use it to describe what so many teachers nowadays seem intent on pushing in schools and universities. Those on the left dismiss it as simply right-wing hyperbole to unfairly criticize progressivism, and even argue that cultural Marxism is an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. But what does it really mean, and is it really a threat? Well, in order to understand cultural Marxism, one first has to understand Marxism, which is, of course, the philosophy of 19th century German political theorist Karl Marx, which later formed the underpinnings of communism and socialism. To put it very briefly, Marxism is the view that the workers, or the proletariat, are in an oppressive relationship with their capitalist employers, or the bourgeoisie. Marx theorized that workers were being exploited for their labor, and the only way to ensure a fair society was to upend this exploitative relationship with the tyranny of the proletariat in order to create a truly classless society. It's a theory heavily based in economics and relies very much on the notion of a capitalist oppressor class who possess innate and unearned privilege, which oppresses the working class. Now, I'm sure the word oppressed is very familiar to you in the context of how it's thrown around by the modern left in reference to identity politics. However, unlike with Marx, the oppressor class that possess innate and unearned privilege according to the modern left is the straight, white, cisgendered man, and the impressed are everyone else. So, here is where we can see how the term cultural Marxism has relevance. Take Marx's theory of an oppressive economic class, subvert it to mean an oppressive identity class, and push it through the West's cultural institutions like universities, the arts, and so on, in order to use culture to sway people's thinking. It's economic Marxism, but with identity politics. Now, fortunately, we're about to speak to someone who can explain cultural Marxism a lot better than I can. He's a journalist and commentator, and is the assignment editor at the wonderful free speech-focused publication of the Epoch Times. Ladies and gentlemen, I am thrilled to present to you tonight the wonderful Daniel Tang. Daniel, it is so fantastic to have you here this evening. How are you doing? Very well. A little bit of a flu, but I think I'll be able to power through. Ah, uh, well, excellent. So, so long as it's not the man flu, I hear that's a deadly bug, absolutely deadly. Normal <laughs> flu, you'd be fine. <laughs> now, Daniel, I just spend a, a large part of my editorial um, explaining, well, trying to explain cultural Marxism. You're much better at it than I am, I know. So I have to ask you, Daniel, what is cultural Marxism? Well, in a nutshell, it's really a descendant of um, Karl Marx's theories. Uh, so Karl Marx came out and, um, you know, back in his day, the 1800s, his idea was that, um, you know, the, the workers need to band together and overthrow the capitalists, which means, you know, political leaders and um, the bosses of major companies. Now, 60, 70 years on, um, many scientists start to realise that, well, many um, philosophers started to realise that, that sort of philosophy doesn't quite take anymore. People, when they hear about overthrowing, you know, government, it's a little bit too much. So communism or Marxism underwent quite a transformation. You could also argue a bit of a mutation. And um, the philosophy, it, it kind of moved along through the, you know, through the decades. It adopted and picked up different um, 
popular trends in society. So things like um, Indigenous rights in Australia. Um, in the US, it's issues like race-based uh, politics, you know, Black Americans versus white Americans. And cultural Marxism is really what you see is kind of like the final product of all those decades of um, molding, um, mutating, adapting, you know, different philosophers throughout the decades have taken the philosophy and they've just, um, you know, just, just, just kind of like um, customized it for different countries and different societal trends. And so cultural Marxism is everywhere, but its ultimate goal at the end of the day is as dramatic as it sounds to kind of eradicate or to overthrow our traditional perception of what society should be. And Daniel, what do these cultural Marxists want to replace society with? I mean, we do hear a lot, don't we, about let's tear down the system and all of that kind of stuff, but they never <laughs> really give a specific idea of what they want to replace it with. Do, do they have any idea what they're doing? Well, actually, strangely enough, that that's the theory of the big lie. Mm. You know, so the big lie is this um, and... It's this tactic that's been used. It's always to sort of like have such a huge goal for this revolutionary movement that you, it's it's virtually unattainable, which means that people will always pursue it. So the best example, and I read this, was that climate change was an example of big lie. So to change the climate, like at what point does an environmental activist go, all right, I think we've changed the climate. And when you really think about it, probably not a lot of chance. So it means that whoever's involved is is hooked on that ideology for decades and sadly for generations. And we've seen that play out in a lot of countries around the world as well. Generational Marxism coming through. Um, what, what actually happens at the end of the day when Marxists are successful? Well, you see those examples in places like communist China. It is, um, it is power. It is power for a very select few and it's scraps for everyone else. Mm. Yes, and that's that's the frightening thing about it. They sort of talk about a socialist utopia, but as we know, a socialist utopia ends up being exactly what you've described, which is, you know, lovely riches and wealth for a small group of elites and then scraps and misery for the rest of the population. It really is is so insidious. Um, now, Daniel, um, you touched on this briefly earlier, that the way that, say, Marxism itself was used in the 20th century to generate uprisings um, in Russia and China, for instance, was predicated on societal division. It was, it was a divide and conquer mentality. Initially in Russia, uh, leftist revolutionaries, revolutionaries like Lenin and Trotsky used these massive socioeconomic disparities between the, the ruling caste and the poor people to divide and conquer. There was very, very little um, middle class, so they could agitate that way. Nowadays, when people are generally kind of happy, mostly with their standards of living, that's harder to do. So are these present-day Marxists using cultural factors like, say, race, gender and sexuality to incite the same kind of uprising? It, that, that's um, hitting the nail on the head, Daisy. Um, and it's also what I like to call an oversimplification of how the world works. Mm. And um, that's a very, it is quite an insidious um, after effect. So it means that you will always see the world through this kind of us and them prism. And uh, another good example, um, the property market in Australia, landlords versus tenants. Mm. And if you look at how the media report it, specific media, it is always tenant versus landlord, um, worker versus big company. But, you know, if any expert in those areas will tell you that most issues in the world are multifaceted, uh, they encompass you know, numerous factors. Like if we just even scrape the surface of the housing affordability crisis in Australia, I can think of at least 10 different factors influencing that not just the so-called greedy landlords, right? Mm. And so that's actually the after effect of the sort of Marxist way of thinking. And it's been this oversimplification of looking at the world has actually been proliferating in, in recent decades through media and social media. Uh, and if you just have a conversation with regular folks uh, on the street and just listen to what they say, you'll realise that, wow, that's actually 
sometimes it's, it can be quite oversimplified um, and, and it's a range of issues. It's, uh, you know, what was the really interesting one? Um, inflation is caused by greedy companies um, and their big profits. <laughs> that, that was a really, that was, I remember oh, that, one. that was very surprising. <laughs> <laughs> And yet they still, and yet they still ran it. They 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 still ran it, and unfortunately, there are there are people out there who buy those kinds of um, simplifications. And I guess that is how you win over the masses with this stuff is oversimplifying it. But also, don't you think being very very emotional about it as well? Yeah, and I think the way through that and those who can recognize the problem is sometimes just educating people and letting them know that there's, you know, there's more to the world than a us and them battle. Uh, and even indigenous rights, uh, there are, there are activists out there who let you believe that it is all because of white oppression, um, that the indigenous people are in the situation they are. Um, but, you know, I, I, and I, I can name a few indigenous experts who will tell you that you know there's so many other factors involved in aboriginal communities um beyond you know the colonial era um so you know it's about sort of i think expanding our minds thinking beyond that soundbite journalism or trying to find an easy way to sort of fix the world um we have to be prepared to sort of think a little bit harder um, <laughs> learn a little bit more and be a bit open-minded um about how the world works and that, you know, there are a lot of issues out there that just that are difficult to deal with. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's also, I think, a little bit of fear of confronting that. You know, it's easier to rely on that soundbite or the, I think they call it heuristics, uh, mm. <laughs> but just rely on that simple solution to the world. Whereas, you know, I think and that's also plays into a bigger issue around our media and political discourse in, the, in most countries. Very oversimplified, very driven by clickbait. So it's a it's designed to appeal to emotions um, and that lowest common denominator, which probably isn't that helpful. No, I, I don't think it's helpful at all. And I, I, I quite like the saying, um, the truth is somewhere in the middle. I think that generally when it, com when it comes to issues and, you know, oversimplifying is never good, the truth is always somewhere around the middle because things are multifaceted. Now, the, the interesting thing about, you know, leftists and, and Marxists nowadays who play into this identity politics with, you know, racial division, gender, etc., is that I think Karl Marx himself, the big daddy of Marxism, hated identity politics. Um, and the reason he hated it was because he asserted that it was a tool used by the elites to divide the working class into these smaller warring tribes based on race, gender, sexuality, etc., in order to weaken the workers as a group and therefore prevent them from rising up together. Do you believe that that's why so many politicians nowadays lean into identity politics and work causes like Black Lives Matter? Um. Oh, that's a that's a good question, Daisy. Um, <laughs> I think sometimes it's actually a little bit of ignorance as well. Mm. I, I think people don't realize, and uh, and we've written a few stories about the um, Marxist influence in Indigenous advocacy. Mm. Uh, and we're not saying they're Marxists or calling them them communists. We're just saying that there is evidence to say that in the sixties, the Communist Party of Australia had a very, you know, an interest in um, playing a role in Indigenous advocacy. And the stuff they discussed back then is still prevalent today. The structures they set up back then is actually how Indigenous advocacy is conducted today. And, you know, when you read those books, it can be quite eerie because it's like Communist Party members just saying, we have to do this, this and this. We have to get Aboriginals focus on land rights because soon after at the end game of that is that the communists will eventually come into power. And this was spoken by early, you know, I think Jack Sharkey or something. They said stuff like that. So it, it is a little bit of ignorance um, that we play into this identity politics. Um, and I guess the Epoch Times, one of our focuses is to sort of expand and let people understand just just how much the trajectory of our societies has been impacted by by communism or by Marxism. 
That is um, really fascinating. I didn't know that about um, how in the 1960s the Communist Party started saying that Indigenous people need to, to focus on land rights because now when you put that out in the open, I'm putting two and two together in my head and thinking, actually, all this talk about land rights sounds eerily like sort of, you know, private property rights and it, it's all, it's all the, 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 similar, the similar sort of rhetoric. And um, on that point, um, I'm sure you've seen that video of voice architect Thomas Mayo um, that Advance Australia uncovered um, a little while ago, um, thanking members of the Communist Party for all of their advocacy. So do you think there's evidence even nowadays that communism is really leaning into Indigenous activism? It's always been there. It's mm. always been in the background. Uh, and if you look at certain, you know, there are key advocates uh, for Indigenous activists, you should say, for Indigenous rights who were former Communist Party members uh, in Australia. Um, now, it's you know, obviously nowadays it's probably not polite to call them communists. And, and to be fair, they probably don't practice it. But I think the ideas are what have, prevailed, have just continued. Mm. The ideas have shaped um, how they how they look at the issues, um, how they sort of perceive uh, white oppression, the colonial era, and um, today it's those arguments are still coming out during the, the debate for the voice. It is still this sort of um, and the Uluru statement from the heart. I think you know talking about um, was a, a, a tax sort of like reparations based mm. on GDP percentage. You know, I mean. Where, where do these ideas come from? I mean, they started in the 70s and 60s. And actually, uh, the, the communists back then, indigenous uh, communities around the world was a key focus for communists. They saw that as a, uh, a really good area for them to sort of insert their influence. And um, you can see it. I think Africa is really a good example. The, the, the amount of uh, South Africa, the the amount of Im the big impact of sort of Marxists and communists in those regions uh, today, a lot of those governments were founded back in those areas with the communist backing. That's absolutely um, fascinating, and it really like my my. You can probably smell the smoke. Like I, I'm thinking, <laughs> this is this is a, quite a revelation. I'm really now for the next week of the referendum campaign. I'm going to look at the whole argument in a completely different light. How, how fascinating, and it's, it's just so true. Um, and look, speaking of Australia, um, I'm going to possibly posit something that might be slightly depressing. I mean, we've seen a real shift towards big government from both major parties over the past decade or so. I think that's true of much of the Western world. It was exacerbated, of course, by the pandemic. That was an absolute gift to the left and those who like big government. So I'm thinking, given the woke left's stranglehold on popular culture with cultural Marxism, do you think there is any kind of danger of the West really sliding into sort of an authoritarian hellhole state over the next decade or so, facilitated by this cultural Marxism? Uh, yeah, I think um, there's certainly a lot of um, there are a lot of individuals, experts out there who have now seen that trend, and um, uh, Australia, Europe, especially, have adopted cultural Marxism. Now, it, it, um, people on the street might just go, well, what are you talking about? I'm freer than ever. But um, our embrace of big government is, you know, eerily similar to socialist and Marxist doctrine, you know, the idea that government takes care of everything from cradle to the grave. And when you look at our policies in Australia, you know, we have got the, um, you know, they're rolling in some states, they're considering free childcare. So that's, mm. you know, cradle. And then you've got NDIS and then all the other services at the other end, euthanasia services, so to the grave, right? And mm. we're kind of, Australians are very open to that. Um, we, we, we embrace it wholeheartedly. We think government should take care of us. And it's, it's not to be rude, but it's to say have potentially we have a very different concept of what freedom means now to probably what Australians thought of it 60 or 70 years ago. Certainly in America, we can see the difference. Like how do Americans consider freedom compared to Australians? And because our head office is in New York, we always see this difference. Like the, the way the Americans approach freedom is very different to Australians. 
Um, and Australia is just kind of like, it is terrifying to look at how Americans deal, do with freedom. Like, what? Gun rights? What's that? Mm. Um, but you don't have social medicine and social welfare everywhere. So it's um, we, we've slid and we've gone down this path. It's it's really difficult to turn back. Um, but I think governments are realizing that there is also a limit to that. We can't. Big government has its limits. Um, mm. At a certain point, you realize there's only so much you can control. But I don't know if we've reached that point yet. So uh, what's interesting is also the the misinformation bill. Oh gosh. So, yes. Uh, the UK, Canada, Australia, we're in lockstep rolling that out. Um, again, more nanny state, big government. Um, in the US, uh, the Biden administration is trying to put something like that through, but obviously there'll be a, a huge fight against that. Whether that same fight is in the Australian communities or Canadians or the UK, I think that's that's another question and I don't really have an answer for Yes, it's a very frightening concept. Um, and, you know, on the subject of that, of Australians maybe not mounting that kind of opposition, um, you know, you've said Australians will generally accept the kind of nanny state mentality. What I think the pandemic revealed is that Australians have a complete misunderstanding of freedom. I mean, you and I know that freedom is an inalienable right that we all possess from birth. Australians, I think, seem to think that freedom is in, initiates from the state. So the state is in charge of doling out and taking away freedom um, whenever it sees fit based on whatever conditions. Do you think that's why, one, do you think that's true? And two, is that why Australians were so accepting of lockdowns and vaccine mandates? Yes, yeah, certainly, certainly. And I, I agree on both your points. And I think as well, we never had to fight for freedom like the US did. Um, and it's easily and um yeah it's come easily and it's kind of um you know we're we're not as we're not as wary of it disappearing and i think as well another factor is how how sometimes government encroachment and the nanny state is sold to the population is quite important mm. like no government polit no politician worth their salt is ever going to say worth their salt is ever going to say something like i'm going to roll out this policy but you're going to lose these freedoms Sorry, guys. It doesn't <laughs> quite work like that. It's more like um, I'm, I'm, we're doing, we're rolling out this misinformation bill for your safety. Mm. Uh, we're, you know, we're providing NDIS because we have to look after our elderly, uh, our disabled. Um, we're, we're, we're rolling out the voice because we need to be kind and we need to listen to uh, communities. So. It's, it's always the way it's sold and mm. um, we're not as Australians as a culture are not as skeptical of that necessarily. Uh, they might, or I must take that back. I think for the voice, obviously there's been a bit more skepticism. Yeah, that's true. But um, over the decades, we've been a little bit more compliant with uh, government just taking on more of our rights. And I think a, a part of that is because we never had to sort of fight for it like the US had to with their war of independence and, you know, their civil war. Mm. Oh, and that makes total sense. I mean, um, you mentioned rightly Australians freak out a little bit when the when the Americans start talking about gun rights. It's like, well, why would you need to take up arms if the government gets tyrannical? That's silly. But they've had to do that twice. They had to do that um, in the, the revolution and also in the American Civil War. You had two halves of the country fighting each other, you know, so they, they have had to do it and we just haven't, which is, you know... I, I, Probably more of a blessing yeah, and than a curse. Yeah, they had to forge a nation. Exactly, they had to. Well, they had nation. to forge a nation. Yeah, it's yeah, true. and they had to. Um, they went through a process of understanding what their freedoms were. Mm. Um, the way Australia was founded was relatively peaceful, um, and I think it was the signing of a few documents, and um, off we went. But um, you know that 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 may have contributed to how we how we encapsulate rights and also. I think education is another big one. I often hear complaints from the older generations, the lack of um, civil education in terms of civil rights, understanding how government works. Uh, there used to be classes that just taught how do you know how do how does the government work, how does parliament work, how are your rights um, bestowed, and these sort of classes are not as prevalent anymore, mm. and um, that may also play a part. Mm. Yes. Um, sorry, one second. Charlie, what was that? I just missed that. 
Sorry, Daniel. <laughs> Continuing on. Um, yes, it is. It is all completely fascinating. The, the different attitudes to rights that different nations have. Um, and look, speaking of rights and uh, ideologies again, like communism that take away rights. Interestingly enough, one of the big things that communism attacks um, is the family unit. Can you explain to us why that is? Uh, it's actually interesting. There's a. There was a there's a Chinese saying from Confucius, and I'm going to completely misquote it, but I'll give it a try anyway. Uh, it's <laughs> like if you can if you can manage the family, you can manage a community, and if you can manage a community, you can manage a, a nation. And um, that was a Confucius quote, and mm. I think that kind of outlines why Marxists or communists wanted to target the families from the very early days. And I, I think in China and in, in Russia, they had these experiments where people would be thrown and live, into, and live in giant communes. And uh, the idea was like, there was no family there. Everyone worked together in this commune, which was like a giant production line. It would be self-sustaining. We would farm, make food, eat, and live happily ever after. So that was, that was early experiments with uh, family-less societies. Um, and obviously, the lack of communes nowadays shows you it didn't quite work uh, because the individual's um, interests and rights will ultimately prevail. Um, so th th there's always been this sort of attempt at, um, you know, sort of like obliterating the family unit. And today mm. we're seeing it with different movements. So something a little bit more sensitive, obviously, the LGBT transgender movements, like um, you could probably it wouldn't be hard to sort of see a bit of a Marxist influence there as well. Like when you push these sort of ideologies, what do they ultimately do? Well, they undermine what's considered a nuclear, a traditional nuclear family. Um, and when these ideologies get more prevalent, then more families slowly start to erode away. And um, I have these discussions regularly about how, with my friends, about how hard it is nowadays to raise families, mm. or raise kids. Um, and you can see it, it's cost of living, it's everything else. Uh, everyone's working well, 9 to 5, 9 to 6, 9 to 10. And um, again, that traditional family is getting worn away steadily. And uh, ultimately, what happens when the family wears away, when the family diminishes? Well, a psychiatrist once told me it was actually the state fills the gap. Mm. So humans have a need ultimately. Humans will always need a family. They'll always need a community and they always need a government. But when the community disappears and the family disappears, then that paves the road for the government to step in. And we see that now, you know, mm. family law courts, um, NDIS, um, yeah, all sorts, you know, single parent payments. Mm. Yeah, it's um, it's in, it's incredibly sad. I think that's one of the the saddest, most evil things about communist thinking is that degradation of the family unit. And the other thing that I think connects to that is how militantly atheistic communism is. Um, and that's in order, amongst other reasons, to convince civilians that the highest power isn't God, but instead is the state. Do you think that we're actually seeing that in a modern day context with the left sort of religious deference to climate change alarmist ideology? Well, that, that's, I had that discussion yesterday, mm. actually. And um, it, humans will always need some sort of I'm mean, getting philosophical here, but we'll always need some sort of spiritual or religious um, fulfillment. And when we get rid of one, it doesn't mean we can just go on. We end up what we end up doing is we find something else to fill that gap. Um, and I think Michael Schellenberg is the one who's hit the nail on the head, saying climate change has become the new religion because traditional religions have been pushed out by progressives. So they um, activists will pursue this climate change agenda with this almost religious zeal and fever. Um, in China, during the 90s uh, and the 80s, after it was opening up, they pursued money. So when, the, when spirituality and religion was removed, so what did the Chinese people have left? Well, they went for money. Mm -hmm. So they went for rampant commercialization. Uh, when people go to China, they always talk about how technologically advanced their big cities are and yeah it has its roots it's the chinese society has been for the last few decades very focused on on the on the dollar and so this religious fever we can only replace it we can never really get rid of it that need of ours
Yes, it's it's so fascinating, isn't it? I mean, I remember I made a YouTube video once about the, this topic, the religious weirdness around climate change. They even have deities, don't they? I mean, you'd call Gre Greta Thunberg a sort of the, the patron saint. You've got AOC; she's another sort of sort of saint. And funnily enough, they also have devils, like Donald Trump, for instance, is sort of the the satanic uh -huh. figure, is, isn't he? In that, because he's a massive, you know, climate denier and all of that. It, it's fascinating, isn't it? They even have yeah. deities, devils, and icons. That is actually a really good observation. And, yeah, no, that, that it would definitely play into that. Um, and that, that's the one flaw with atheist uh, societies is that it, it's, um, it thinks it can replace uh, humans' basic needs with materialism. And we've seen that play out in, 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 in Russia and in, in China is this idea that you can just, oh, well, if you, you know, we can just give you everything you need. Um, but the, what, what the communist, what communist party officials have informed me is um, the system doesn't work. You know, and you, you won't see it. Xi Jinping will never say that, but people within the system in China will tell you that the communist systems just do not work. And it's always surprising to hear Australians advocating for communism still. But over there, there are people in the know who just say it just it cannot it just cannot work. There's just no way it can work. And um, I can think of a very a very amusing, uh, not amusing, kind of scary story. So, so the, the, the Chinese have pursued uh, climate change environmentalism too, uh, but they have taken that to another level. So I heard this statistic the other day. China has built over 80,000 dams wow. in the country. So 80,000 dams. So every Tom, Dick and Harry is damming a nearby stream or a river. Mm. Um, and why is that? It's because the government pursued, well, the authorities pursued this line of environmentalism and they just pushed it into overdrive. And so everyone's building dams. But obviously you can imagine what does 80,000 dams do to the water resources in a country? Mm. It, damages it beyond belief. So now they've got these very amusing ways of dealing with it. So the communist authorities realize, oh no, we've, we've screwed up our river systems. Okay, so what we're gonna do is every person who wants to build a dam, you need to breed the equal amount of fish <gasps> that get killed off, yeah? Breed, breed, have your fish farms and throw all those fish back into the river or throw those fish into the river <laughs> to replenish the fish stocks. And, um, this official said to me, you know, ecosystems aren't just one fish, right? Ecosystems are a food chain, multiple species, uh, you know, like 10 or 20 different species relying on each other. So throwing a bunch of fish in probably means they're going to die. Yeah. So this is, this is the cycle that's happening in communist China. And it's happening on different, they, they push this materialistic atheist ideology to the brink. They realize it's not working. It's damaging the society. And they're trying to, they pull it back and try to fix it. But by the time they pull it back, it's just, it's, the damage is far gone. And the one-child policy is probably the best example. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the one-child policy was was horrendous for, for all of the obvious reasons. Um, and it's amazing to think it actually wasn't that long ago. So to 2013, I think it was abolished, like not that long ago. It's, it's yeah. crazy. Um, and, and look, on the subject of the communist system just not working in China, I always think well, one of the many differences between liberalism and communism and Marxist you know, thinking is that liberalism is very tolerant of a spectrum of opinion, you know? There's a, it's a big umbrella with a lot of different sort of opinions and we can all talk happily about it and everyone's fine. But in communism, you really have to toe the party line. Do you think that's why, as the saying goes, communism only works, well, it never works, but it functions at the barrel of a gun? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, it's about power at the end of the day. Um, but you're the, again, in, in the West, you're seeing that sort of towing the party line trend come through. And uh, it, and you, you probably understand this. If you go to a, rent, a restaurant, I don't know, Newtown or West End in Brisbane mm. and just say the word Donald Trump, <laughs> I, I think you can feel the <laughs> awkward vibe there, right? So there are certain things in our societies now that are taboo to talk about. Um, and it, it's, there's an irony there that we are supposed to be a tolerant society 
but we're tolerant until we talk about certain issues. Well, I think it's the it's the animal farm idea, isn't it? It's like, you know, it's my tolerance kind of, not yours. Uh, some people just have more rights than others, uh, more equal than others. More so, equal than others, yeah. Yeah, so in, in, in China, it's certainly, we're seeing the impacts of what Marxism can do to a society. But in the West, we have, we have adopted a lot of those, uh, we have adopted a lot of those ideas. And um, it would also explain why so many people nowadays are still fighting to sort of maintain and rediscover what Australia's traditional values are. Mm. And I think it is, it's lovely to see though that people are actually trying to rediscover Australia's traditional values. And look, perhaps with this voice referendum with such a big no push, maybe people are realising that contrary to what our sort of cultural Marxist elite say, Australia actually uh, isn't isn't such a bad place to live, <laughs> absolutely not. <laughs> Daniel Tang, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I've really enjoyed this chat and I do hope we can do it again soon. No worries. Have a good day. You too. Well, fashion has for millennia been a way for people to express themselves, especially women. But what's a woman to do when, in 2023, so much of fashion features flesh rather than fabric? And that's before you touch on the wokeism in corporations like Target in the USA. Well, my next guest has taken steps to create a brand that caters to women with mainstream values, both in design and philosophy. She's an actress, model, mother, and co-founder of fashion label Pretty Little Patriot, May I present to you, ladies and gentlemen, the delightful Pamela Jean Noble. Pamela, it is gorgeous to have you here. And can I say, you look gorgeous. Is that a pretty little Patriot design by any chance? Oh, I think we just lost sound for a second there. Sorry, Pamela. No, you're fine. Are we okay, Charlie? I can hear Pamela now. Okay. All right, where would you like me to go from? Do you want me to ask the uh, whether that's a pretty little Patriot top again? Okay, sorry guys, that was just weird. <laughs> Pamela, it is so lovely to have you here this evening. You look gorgeous. And I have to ask, is that a pretty little Patriot design you're wearing? Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. And it is a pretty little Patriot top. So I appreciate that. Well, it is glorious. I love a bit of shine. I love a bit of gold. And that top has both. Now, Pamela, Pretty Little <laughs> Patriot is described in the, com in the company's mission statement as not only sharing a fashion brand, but a journey. And the website states, mm -hmm. We hope that as you become a devoted and dedicated customer, you truly feel the attention and detail we put into each piece and also the love and honor we bring to you as a woman by elevating our brand into the space that truly respects every woman as God created her. Now, I think that mm -hmm. is just a really, really lovely sentiment. Can you elaborate on that for our viewers? Yeah, so I feel like it's exactly what you said in your opening statement. We were so frustrated with, you know, the past two years, men modeling women's fashion, being kind of put on this pedestal for modeling our fashion. And not only that, but when we actually started talking about the fact that this was all our dreams, we had all talked to our husbands about it. We all didn't want to do it alone. So that's why we joined forces to do it together. We had said it's so interesting that men, for the most part, have founded most of the women's clothing brands. And why are men choosing what goes on our women's bodies? So there was a lot that went into our mission and why we did what we did and where we want to go with this. And I feel like this is only the beginning, but we value women for how God created them and that it's XX chromosomes only for Pretty Little Patriot. <laughs> and, you know, we're just, we're really honored for, you know, the feedback that we've gotten from even starting this.
Yeah, well, I, I mean, I've I've been having a look at some of the lovely designs on the Pretty Little Patriot website, and it seems there is a real emphasis on things like silhouette and form as a way of creating an alluring look rather than just showing off lots of skin. Um, is that a mm -hmm. deliberate choice? Yeah, it was definitely deliberate. I mean, there's we we feel like there's a ways to be sexy without showing everything, you know? So maybe it's a shoulder, maybe it's, you know, a skirt that shows off your your silhouette, like you said. Um, but basically what we really wanted to do was bring pieces that every woman could look to us for. So whether it was church or a baby shower or a wedding or, you know, an event like a turning point event, they knew that they could come to Pretty Little Patriot and we would have very beautiful clothes, but also with unique details was the very thing that kind of has gone into where we want to go with this company. You know, like this is a sequin tops, but it has a little ruching on the side and different things to make each piece a little unique and, and very beautiful back to how I think women should be dressing. Well, it is certainly beautiful um, and feminine and really caters to the female form, as you say, uh, as God created it. And you mentioned um, the, the XX logo, no, no coincidence, as you put it. So I think you, you and I can probably both agree then that the definition of a woman is an adult human female. Yes, uh, that is for sure. Born with the XX chromosomes just to put the little cherry on top. Uh, it's so funny, though, because I feel like we have to explain that. I think people just think we put together this logo and because it looks cute, you know, and it's like, no, we... We sat down and everything that has been done with this company has been very intentional, including the logo. And uh, we really want women to feel that when they're on our website and when they're shopping and when they see our social media that, you know, it's we're women and moms and wives and we're really busy, but we put so much time into this company and, and sweat and tears and uh, everything is done with a purpose. Absolutely. And um, I was reading on your website the, the lovely story of how the three of you uh, came together, your, your lovely co-founders, um, Kendall Bailey and Lindsay Graham. Um, it started at a, a women's event, wasn't it? And, and it was it read to me like it was faint. You know, the design ended up put on a cocktail napkin, the chemistry, the three of you just came together. Do you think this, you know, for lack of a better term, is part of God's plan for the three of you? Yeah, I completely think so. You know, we prayed about so much before making decisions in this company. We prayed if we were supposed to be doing it. We prayed, you know, when we even got like, you know, the haters and the na the negative people. So um, I think every, and there's been times where things have gone wrong. I could tell you the launch day, if you could see behind the scenes, like I think all of us wanted to pull our hair out, <laughs> but we made it through and we said prayers. And I think, you know, every single time I hear how other people describe us. It just gives me more faith that we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. And, you know, the late nights, and I'm gonna get kind of emotional, the late nights and the early mornings oh. are so worth it because we, you know, it's it's not easy. And definitely entrepreneurship is not easy. And I think we've all learned that even though we've done it in certain ways by ourselves. But, um, you know, when like you saying just your opening, I got chills. And when that happens, I feel like God's saying like, this is what you're supposed to be doing. And like, just keep moving forward and keep your eye on what like, you know, spread my truth and, and that's it. And so that's what we're trying to do every single day. Well, I, I, I appreciate your emotion and I, I really do mean it when I say I think it is a, it's a lovely sentiment um, <clears throat> and an absolutely lovely idea. And you're right when you say um, it is hard and it is emotional uh, being an entrepreneur and you're certainly no stranger to it, are you? You've had a career as an actress, um, you've also had a, a successful career as a model. Um, did you think working in those two industries, acting and modeling, were good preparation, do you think, for running a fashion line since it's sort of an introduction to that world? Yeah, I mean, I think it definitely has helped with, you know, I've done a lot of red carpets and, and appearances and different things like that. Um, I think I had to do what I did to come back to my faith, because I'll be completely frank that I, I just did not have my eye on Christ. And thank goodness I was blessed with my son when we least expected it. Mm -hmm. And that's what's definitely turned everything around for our entire family. And so, um, 
I think for as far as dressing and eye-catching and seeing trends, it definitely helped. However, I will say I dress much different than I used to. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think we all dress uh, we all dress quite differently <laughs> than we did in our youth. I, I certainly dressed a lot differently than I did <laughs> when I was in my early twenties. <laughs> certainly. Now, look, when um, Pretty Little Patriot was in its initial stages, um, you and the brand's lovely co-founders um, were discussing, you know, as you mentioned, it's hard to find a clothing company that aligns with your values and honors real women. Um, what are the ways in which Pretty Little Patriot seeks to, you know, specifically honor real women? And also, um, what are the values that you seek to uphold with the brand? Yeah, so I think, like I said, first and foremost, we pray almost for every decision that needs to be made in the company. I mean, I can tell you we had a bad day this morning. Nothing was going right in our personal lives. And literally, <laughs> Lindsay called, we said a prayer, and I will say the rest of the day went much better. So um, not only are we staying true to, obviously, the Christian values, but even the vendors that we work with in the United States are conservative and Christian and all found on Public Square. They're Public Square brands. Um, so we are not just hiring somebody because they're the cheapest price or because they are the easiest person to you know work with. It's because they value our same brands and they value women for who they are supposed to be. Um, besides that, you you know, it's including everything that we want to do in the future. We have such big plans. Um, we want make, to make sure that women know and want to share their worth in the XX chromosome and wear that proudly because it's being stripped away from us every single day. Um, and then even it goes to as small of details as what's thrown into every single package. We have a Bible verse on every single package. Um, and it's, you know, many women do noble things, but you surpass them all because that's how we feel women should feel when they're wearing their cl our clothing. And it's for a, such a time as this with our XX chromosomes and showing that, you know, our worth matters and how we were born matters and it doesn't need to be taken away from us by any means. I, lo I love that. Um, amen to all of that, as they say, absolutely. Now, you are, as we've, as we've seen, you know, unashamedly conservative, unashamedly Christian, and also you're unashamedly willing to put your stake in the ground on what the definition of a woman is, which is an adult human female. You must have suffered um, a bit of pushback uh, for that attitude, have you? Oh, yeah, I can't get an agent to save my life. Like, unless uh, somebody <laughs> that was conservative Christian sees me and wants to, like, help me somehow, like, there's no way I'm getting jobs anytime soon. Um, so that's definitely taken a back seat. Um, and I, you know, I don't I don't plan that it's going to happen anytime soon. Let's just put it that way. Unless I can, I have an angel that, you know, sees me on Daisy and then all of a sudden I <laughs> But uh, I'm okay with it. You know, I think there was probably about a year where I was, I think, sad. Um, and I think that God put me in different places. I, I am a love life mentor as well. And, you know, there was a huge chance if I was still acting and I was on set for 15 hour days, A, I wouldn't have the relationship with my son that I have. But B, I would not probably not be the love life mentee and be, you know, a precious little um have a precious little baby that I get to see raised because I was in this mom's life. So, um, you know, if it ever comes, then I'm going to feel like that's God's plan. But as of right now, I just don't think that's that's in my cards. <laughs> Mm. And it's it's liberating to sort of feel that in a, in a funny sort of way, isn't it? I, I mean, I, I've been in situations absolutely where I thought I was going to do one thing, but, you know, life and God led me in, in, in another direction. Um, and you're, you're very much a, a family person as well. Like, you know, I, I can tell you, you're, you're a little baby. Um, is such a huge part of your identity and your psyche. Um, is it is it difficult? I hate to ask the cliched question here, but it's got to be asked. Uh, do you find that difficult to to balance that family life um, with Pretty Little Patriot? 
Yeah. I mean, I think there's always going to be days that aren't easy. There's always going to be days that are more workload than others. Um, I try to like this morning, for example, we had a call at 7am before my son was even up. And then during his nap, we, I did another like two, three hours. So I try to, as much as possible, do it around his schedule. Obviously that's not going to always work with every single person, but um, we do, we try to do our best in making sure, like we all said when we started this, like this cannot interfere with, you know, our husband, our relationship with our husbands and our kids. And I think there's been also days where some of us are having harder times than others. And I think that's what's beautiful about the three of us is we all have such strengths where our others' weaknesses are and we pick up the slack for that person when they need it. And um, I think that's a truly beautiful business partnership is it's not just you know, well, I did my work for the day. So figure yours out. It's Mm. like, no, we're, you know, we're becoming a family with the three of us. And we didn't know each other that well before, but it's becoming, you know, a friendship, a family, you know, we, our husbands get along, we want our kids to grow up together and we're, we're in this for the long haul. So Mm. sounds like you, you, you ladies are a real team and that's exactly what you want. (laughs) Now, Pamela, uh, just before we go, I've got to ask you the very important question. Where are Pretty Little Patriots products made? (laughs) <laughs> the the question that has gotten the social media game on fire. So um, <laughs> when we decided to start this company, we um, said that we are pro-family, we're pro-life, we're pro-freedom. Um, we never said 100% of our products would be made in the USA. That was never a claim made by us because at the end of the day, we value stay-at-home moms. And we know that the stay-at-home mom wallet is not going to be able to afford um, made in the USA products, especially not if she needs, you know, something for a wedding, uh, church, and to go to an event later this year. You know, unfortunately, that's just it is what it is until USA fixes their manufacturing <laughs> capabilities. Um, so we do have stuff that is made in the USA. It's just not a hun- all of our stuff is 100% made in the USA. Um, and we'll have stuff at different price points. So that way, always the stay-at-home mom is going to be so valued by us. Um, and the people that want made in the USA, we're going to have items for you too. But I cannot stress enough, we are not even a month old and you have to be patient with us. <laughs> well, I, I think you're doing brilliantly. I think in this economy, particularly under President Joe Biden, having any of your products made in the USA <laughs> is is a huge achievement. Um, and as as you say, you know, the stay-at-home mom's wallet is at the moment simply not able to cater to all of that. But as and also as you say, only a month old and you've done all these wonderful things is incredibly impressive. Pamela Jean Noble, you are glorious. Congratulations on Pretty Little Patriot. I encourage everyone to go visit the site. The link is down there on the strap on the screen. Um, And all the very, very best for the future of the brand. Thank you so much. You are such a blessing and we appreciate you. Well, that's all we have time for on Daisy Cousins Present. What a fascinating, enlightening show we've had tonight. Make sure you tune in next week for more of the world's most fascinating creative people. Good night, world. I'll see you soon.